Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm your host today. <clears throat> want to reflect a little bit on the week. Had a really good week. Uh, spent some time meeting with a young couple whose wedding I'm going to be doing in a couple of weeks, and we had a great time with them on Wednesday night. It's been kind of a quiet week as far as getting out and doing things. Um, we haven't been anywhere. That, well, we went out on Monday. It was Labor Day. We went out and had actually a really nice hike that day up in up just below Mount Mitchell over here in western North Carolina in, in an area called the South Toe River. Um, really nice hike. Highly recommended. It, it's, I, I would think that nearly anybody could actually do this hike. It's, there's a little bit of climb at the first, but the rest of it is, is just walking. Um, but it's really nice. Some really pretty little creeks and uh, the river itself is flowing and it was really nice. And so we had a good time up there in the middle of nowhere actually. It was, uh, it was a good day. And then, like I said, had a really nice time with this couple. I'm looking forward to doing their wedding in a couple of weeks. That'll be a good and exciting thing. It, it feels more normal, right, to do that, um, to, to say we've got a wedding to do um, after this long season of weirdness. It feels like maybe we're coming to a new place in that. Numbers are way down and, and looking much better as far as this whole COVID thing goes. And that's always exciting. And had a wonderful evening last night with uh, good Christian friends and just just really enjoyed our time. So it's been, you know, it's been a good week. I'm not a relaxing week particularly. It's been busy. There's, uh, but, but it's had a great conversation with a good friend out in West Tennessee on Thursday. Ended up spending two hours on the phone with her and just thoroughly enjoyed myself with that. So anyway, it's been a good week and, and I think we're ready to kind of press on and and maybe begin to live life a little uh, more fully than we have for quite some time. Things feel like they're changing, but it's odd. We've got um, sort of a fig tree in my yard and, and a couple of days ago we went out and picked like a hundred or more figs off the tree and we still got a ton left to do. Um, but the other strange thing is we have an apple tree in our front yard that in the past sometimes has produced it's a small apple tree. You can pick all of them while you're standing there without even a ladder. And we've picked sometimes in excess of 250 or 300 apples off that tree. So we got them all off this year. And we probably had, I don't know, 75 or so. The squirrels and bears and other stuff get some. Um, they, in fact, they probably got close to half of them this year. And they, they just take a couple of bites and don't do anything with them, so you got to clean them up. But anyway, that tree, all the leaves dropped off of it maybe three weeks ago, or most of the leaves did. But we would, So I started noticing over the last couple of weeks something really strange looking, and I wasn't sure whether I was right about it or not. And then as I walked by, and I noticed that that tree had stuff that looked new, growth, like green leaves and stuff like that and, and I've really been trying to convince myself it's not true because it doesn't make any sense but this week yesterday in fact as we were getting ready to go to dinner we walked out and I happened to notice that that tree wasn't just coming to life with some leaves even here now in on September the 11th um, there are buds on that tree and Suzanne's response to that was, well, it's 2020, so there's no telling what might happen. But, yeah, so we have new leaves growing, and then there are several buds on this tree. It's just weird. 
Um, but you know, hey, that fits the pattern, right, for 2020. So here we go. <laughs> so it's like I said, been, uh, there's a lot, I think, in the lessons we have today that, that lend themselves to talking about current events in kind of an, um, a way that, that kind of helps us maybe think through some of these things as Christians. And because and, I've talked to several pastors this week, I've talked to other people I know who are um, clergy who are, who are working in churches right now, and it's a really hard time. To be in parish ministry because there's so much going on in the world. There's so much polarization in in America and and in a lot of other places as well. We don't hear about it much, but the whole mask thing is really controversial and, and becoming very heated in different parts of Europe. There's been significant protests about these mask requirements, and, and I think that. Probably as Americans, we're generally unaware that this is going on, but but there's nothing, there's no analog for the protests that I see um, in Europe. There's no analog for those kinds of protests regarding masks in America. So uh, uh, there's a there, there's a frog in the kettle thing going on, and the frog's ready to get out now. The frog realizes that this water's getting hot, and they need to change. They're looking at things and saying, well, maybe this is not all we thought it was or we've been led to believe it was so you got that going on and, and then the it, within churches there's deep division that mirrors some of the stuff that's going on in america today you've got the division that that we see in in all of life right now i mean i see that numbers for professional sports are way down as far as viewership is concerned um and I think there's multiple reasons for that, but not the least of it, I think, is, is this political activism that has not just crept in, but it's taken over. Um, it, it can't just be COVID. And the reason I say that is because, like, for instance, ESPN, the uh, Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, their numbers are way off since they got uh, politically active. And the, the football numbers were way down. People booed at the beginning of the game because people wouldn't come out for the national anthem or knelt for the um, that, but what I see in that and what I see on Facebook and other places is, is a growing division that's more than just people who disagree. It, it's come down to the, the reality that, that if you disagree with some positions, you're bad, you're evil, and you've got to be reeducated. Your opinion can't be expressed in the public square. I see it all the time. If you follow, if you're going to vote for this candidate, then you might as well go ahead and unfollow me right now because you're an evil person. And I see it on both sides. It's worse on one side, I believe, where I see that. Um, and, I, and I've experienced it, the whole cancel culture um, thing through a guy that used to go to my church who I disagree with. I don't. I would say that we that we're, we would disagree politically, certainly, but but that that's not the core thing with him. It, it has to do with a whole lot of other things. He he takes certain positions on a great number of issues that I, that I don't see eye to eye with him on, and he gets very offended when people he knows express views on Facebook that differ from his. And I, I kind of got in his face about it a couple of years ago, and he immediately unfriended me on Facebook, and the person who 
uh, had made the comment that he responded to, uh, he defriended her as well. And, and so I've seen this, this growing, not intolerance, that's not even the word for it, it's way worse than that. Um, it's a hatred for certain kinds of positions, whether they're political or otherwise. But everything becomes political when you don't have Jesus. When, as the culture moves further and further into secularism, and we're rapidly moving in that direction, um, then the way things operate changes. The way things, um, what's allowable changes. Christianity allows for a broad range of, of opinions. I won't say that it's always been perfect at that, but, but there's this growing intolerance and it's a growing dogma of belief that has to happen. And some people baptize that stuff into Christianity and, and, and what they're doing, what we always do when we do that, because both sides do it, is we bring toxic stuff uncritically into the church. And so for a long time, the left has complained that the right has politicized the church. And I see that same corruption now happening in reverse. But I want to, so I want to talk to Christians about that a little bit today. There's a lot to, to think about with that. And it happens that our lessons actually talk about those very things. And so I don't, <clears throat> Paul in, in, the epistle to the Romans, and we're looking at verse uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, begins with, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And then he talks about some specific things. It seems that there must have been a, a sizable content, two sizable contingents in the church in Rome that he's speaking to, because he's not just speaking in the abstract. He's speaking in the current realities. And so what he says is, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. There might be some judgment in calling that person a weak person. Uh, then, But he says, let, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then he talks about people who esteem one day as better than the other. That might be people keeping... Uh, Jewish feasts, for instance. He says one person esteems one day is better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one shall be fully convinced in his own mind. And then Paul gives us a wonderful principle, and I wonder if people could apply this principle, how much would it change and change the dialogue in the church? And here's his principle. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. If Christians could grasp that principle and live that principle, and we could say, I, I respect your choice. I believe that I see the Holy Spirit operating in your life, leading you to make that choice. I believe that you made it in good conscience for yourself because this is what God has said to you about this. 
so I respect that. That that would be a wonderful thing, but but the but the one who's doing it can't think themselves better on this issue that is not essential. But that is the biggest problem in the churches is that 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 we strike a position on something like vegetarianism. I mean, this is actually real, right? We strike that position, I'm going to be a vegetarian because I think it's the most ethical thing to do. And Paul's response would be, if God's telling you to do that, then do it in honor of the Lord, not in judgment of the one who doesn't. And he would say to the one who eats meat, likewise. Do the same thing. And he says it here with respect to esteeming one day or over the other. There's nothing scripturally that says not to do that. But the problem is we can't take apart things well enough to get down to the essential of what we're saying. We're taking in, and we have done this for a long time in the church, we're taking in all the other baggage around something and lionizing it and sanctifying our position, and we cloak it in this veil of righteousness. And now there can be no disagreement. Well, things are a lot more nuanced than that. On these kinds of positions, I'm not saying there aren't things we have to be incredibly dogmatic about and things that we have to say, this is the way things are. Christians must believe these things. The church has done that since the beginning. There's this thing called the Apostles' Creed that we believe literally goes back to the time of the Apostles. Then we move forward a little bit and we get the Nicene Creed, which most churches basically take as their standard of faith. If you don't believe the stuff that's in here, then you can't really consider yourself a Christian. It's And now what we've done, and we've done it, like I said, we've done it for years. I'm not accusing one side over the other. But but one side lately has said, you've, you've got to reconsider everything you believe because maybe there's a privilege attached to that, that, that you've baptized something. Well, but okay, we will. And so there's been remarkable change in the church and thought on things. William Wilberforce fought the battle for slavery against it, obviously, in England, way before it even happened here. And he fought it all his life and with all his might that this is wrong because these are other human beings who are enslaved. And so that battle was, was fought and won in England. That battle was fought and won in America. And America um, went through hell. Lots of lives were lost because of that battle. But that battle wasn't the final battle. We still had to fight the battle for civil rights in the 60s. All those things still had to happen. There's, there's all kinds of things that needed to happen. And I'm not saying that, that we're, any, we're close to perfect these days. But, but everyone must look to his own heart and must look to the sin in his own heart. You can't condemn one group of people unless they're engaging in what is the Bible would absolutely classify as sin. You can't demonize those people. The, the result of demonizing people is things like genocide. It's things like the Holocaust. It, we have to stop demonizing one another on things that are 
not essential. And Paul is, is very concerned about that in this epistle to the Romans. But what he says is, is basically, tend to your knitting. If God has told you to do this, then do that to the glory and the honor of God, whichever one of those two options you see. Do it for the glory and the honor of God. And if, in, in doing that, what happens is you keep your eyes on him and doing what you do in obedience to him and giving glory and honor to him. And, and you let your brother do the same. But it's something that obviously um, was really under Paul's skin and the concern. And he ends this with, with none of us lives to himself or none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why, you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then he ends it with this. So that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's be careful about the judgments we pass. Let it not lead to despising and hating our brother. We see that same thing in the gospel lesson. It's Matthew 18, 21 to 35. It's the passage where Peter comes to him and says to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I say not to you <clears throat> seven times, but 77 times. Peter's being magnanimous. Three was the requirement. Under the law, Peter's being magnanimous and saying, how about seven? Jesus says, no. Either 77 times or 70 times seven whichever way the translation goes on that. And so then Jesus tells the story of a master whose servant owed him 10,000 talents. He calls him in and was going to sell him with his wife and children and everything he had in order to make payment. Now, 10,000 talents, talent is a measure of weight. So you've got to be careful about, okay, what are we measuring here? But a silver talent in today's money, 10,000 silver talents, would be about 160-something million dollars. And gold would be over a billion. So you're talking about an enormous amount of money. A, a, an unfathomable amount of money at that time. A servant falls on his knees and says, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That'd be like if one person owned all the student debt in America and waved their hand and said, nobody owes me anything anymore. I mean, it's, it's that order of magnitude to forgive a debt like that. that it, it, you, you can't imagine, literally, what that would mean. So then that servant goes out, just having been rec received forgiveness for much, goes out and confronts a fellow servant who owed him, owed him 100 denarii, which a denarii was a day's wages, so you're talking about, you know, three and a half months, say, of wages. And he seized him, began to choke him, and said, pay what you owe me. Fellow servant says the same thing to him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. And he refused. And he put him into prison that he paid the debt. And his fellow servants then went and told the master and then the master had the one who owed much arrested and, and thrown into prison until that debt's paid. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from 
to forgive somebody from the heart is to forgive them completely. It's not just forgiving them in your head. It's forgiving them completely, putting it aside, going away, moving on, and never recalling that. You do it for love's sake, the love of the brother. You lay down your life. You take up your cross, and you eat the loss, and you forgive. I wonder how many of us realize how great sinners we actually are. We make short shrift of our own sin. We're not even aware. We overlook our own sin because we see that sin in the eye of the brother. Jesus tells us again and again and again this same basic parable in different forms. And what he's saying is, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, my Father, Heavenly Father, will do to every one of you. And what he did was, what the servant was told was, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Judgment of God is real. I am the one whose sins need to be dealt with. Not your sins, my sins. Our self-righteousness can get us in hell. If we don't forgive, then we will not be forgiven. Jesus is plain about that. We're not supposed to carry hatred in our heart for our brothers. We're not supposed to carry that, that unforgiveness and that judgment against our brothers. And I see it in the church now, and it's horrible. There's a saying, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. It's actually from a German theologian from the 18th, 17th century that hardly anybody knows, um, Rupertus Meldinius. And it's a tract on Christian unity. And so we've got to determine what, so I'm going to repeat it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. If we, the church, could take that, live that out, and, and deal with our differences with that principle in mind, then, then the world might actually care. And if they saw something in the church where people who disagree with one another on things don't unfriend one another, don't walk away from one another, then, then maybe the world would see a different way as well, in a, in a way that works, a unique way. So what are those essentials? I would say those things come down to the creeds. What do we believe? We believe that God created all things, that he loves all things, that he is above all things and in all things, that he is one God. And we believe that he sent his spirit to Mary and Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and brought forth a son, Jesus, who is of one being, one essence, one substance with the Father. He and the Father are the same, whatever the Father is, Jesus is, whatever Jesus is, the Father is, and that he was crucified before Pontius Pilate because of our sin for us and our transgressions. He was crucified, and on the third day he rose again and ascended to the throne above. And the Holy Spirit is our leader and guide in all things, leading us to true through the word of God written and the word of God revealed in Jesus Christ 
and that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Those are the essentials. In other kinds of things, there's liberty. We, we have the freedom to disagree, but, but we can only disagree to the extent that we're willing to listen to our brother and believe that our brother and sister comes to those things in good conscience and in good faith and that they, too, are filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't fail to deal with our brothers and sisters in love when we disagree. But we do. And that's got to be fixed. It's got to get better. It's tearing the churches apart. Glad I'm not in parish ministry right now for that very reason. People don't seem to be able to deal with that. So the final thing I want to do is deal with the, the um, Old Testament lessons. The reason I've waited until last to do it may not be apparent yet because what's, what's important in this passage, it's what it is, it's Exodus 14, 19 to 31. It's when God delivers the people from Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea. So we've got this thing, the angel of God was going before the host of Israel <coughs> moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt, the, the army of Egypt, and the host of Israel. So there's a division between Egypt and Israel, a protective division. But it's an interesting one, too, because and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night with one coming near the other all night. So you've got light where the children of God are, darkness where the Egyptian army is. That's the same as the ninth plague, the next to last plague, where there is light in Goshen and darkness in the land of Egypt, a separation that lasted three days, and that three days of darkness was so thick, heavy, it could be felt. Um, Exodus says they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And so you've got the Egyptians living in the darkness. It's so dark, there's no reason to even move or go anywhere. That's the ninth plague. Now here, as they stand at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind them, the Red Sea in front of them, that pillar of cloud goes, and you have that same light and dark division. That should have given somebody a clue for what's next. It's going to be death. The tenth plague. So he's already struck the firstborn. But here we are. Moses stretches his hand over the sea. The Lord drives back the sea with a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters were a wall on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen in the morning watch. The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. So they drove heavily, and the Egyptian says, let us flee. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand out over the sea. They've crossed the sea now that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretches his arm out. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the middle of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horses of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. I want you to remember something. If you go back, to Exodus 2, what happens, remember, is that Pharaoh uh, charges the Hebrew midwives with killing firstborn sons of the 
people of Israel and they come back and they say, you know, you won't believe this, but by the time we get there after they've called for us, the Hebrew women have already given birth. They're stronger and sturdier than the Egyptians. We can't kill these children after they've been born. And Pharaoh's mad and he says, well, then if you won't do it, then I'll get some people who will. And he orders the Egyptian people to take the firstborn Hebrew children and to do what with them? Throw them into the Nile so that they drown. And there's no evidence of a crime when you do that. You throw a child into the Nile, it's as if it never was. It's negated its life, and, and it's gone. And so these Israelites who now come to the Red Sea have seen their babies thrown into the Nile and drown. And what does God do? He drowns the Egyptian army. Unbelievably cathartic to see that same punishment brought down on your enemies. And so they sing. Miriam, the men sing. Then Miriam leads the women who don't sing. They just beat the drums and the timbrels because of their sorrow that's so great. But here's the kicker. If you go to a Seder meal today, when they drink the wine, the cups of celebration, they take their fingers and they dip it in the wine and they drop some of that wine out onto a napkin. It's 10 drops total. And it's because what they recognize and what they have recognized since the time of the Talmud, the Talmud said that, that prior to the, the the people of Israel singing, the angels were preparing to sing, and God looked to the angels and told them not to sing. How dare you sing for joy when my creatures are dying? And he's speaking about the Egyptians. And so those ten drops... I mean, we can't drink the full measure of joy, even here in the Seder celebration of Passover, because the Egyptians, our enemies, died. So it's not just brothers that we need to be able to hear, that we need to be able to not demonize. It's all those created in the image of God. We have a duty and responsibility to him to hear those voices, to listen to those voices, and in some cases to heed those voices because God, over time, at different times, has used people outside the church to correct the church. But we've got to listen in order to be able to do that. It doesn't mean every word spoken by those outside the church should be heeded, nor does it mean it shouldn't be. But we're to treat all as brothers, we're to, to, to mourn the life of every human being that failed to reach its potential. All lives matter to us because they matter to God. And so in this life, we will never drink fully the cup of celebration and joy because there are those who suffer. And we must remember that. And so we must approach all things with humility. It grieves God, the loss of a single one. And so we must grieve with them. But we can't 
there are multiple ways in which you can take a life. And you can do that by killing somebody, but you can also do that by nullifying someone. Writing them off. Walking away from them. Because they differ from you. You've demonized that person and you've nullified that person. That person may have something remarkable to give your life, to speak into your life, and you cut off a potential for doing that. Jesus didn't cut people off. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's see if we can begin to act the same way and change the world by loving one another in spite of our differences. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green. I hope you have a blessed week. If you have questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, or anything else to say, then you see the Facebook link here on the page where the podcast is. You can click on that link and go to what it says website, but it's the Facebook page. Feel free to go there. Feel free to publicly comment. Feel free to send a private message. Any of that's fine. But I hope you have a blessed week, and I hope the Lord impresses on your heart that there are people you need to listen to that you may have cut off from. You may have cut off because they have something to say you don't like, that you disagree with, even maybe something you find repugnant. There were a great many people who found the words of William Wilberforce concerning slavery quite repugnant. But it's perseverance and love and patience without demonizing others. One today, one the argument. Jesus' perseverance on the cross, praying for those who persecuted him and crucified him. One today. Don't let politics, don't let all that stuff cut you off from people you need to hear from. Have a great day. God bless all that you do in his name. Whatever you do, Paul says, do it for the honor of the Lord. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Remember, that's your purpose.